0: If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn to John chapter 3. We're in John 3 this morning. Um, as you, If you've been with us, you know we've been in this chapter now for a couple of weeks, just kind of taking our time, walking step by step uh, through what the evangelist is telling us, uh, seeking to, to really track with the steps of Jesus in this early season of His ministry. What we're going to see uh, this morning, is Jesus is now on the move. He, is, uh, he has been in Jerusalem, and He was there for Passover, so He'd been there in sort of, sort of the urban context, right? He's there in the city. He's shown Himself. He's worked there during the, during the busiest time of the year. Jerusalem during Passover is like, like New York City uh, on New Year's Eve, okay? It is crowded. Most of the people who are there don't live there. It's just a chaotic chaotic, urban setting, and now it, he's, he's headed out into the countryside. He's headed out into the suburban context, the more rural area. He's coming into our neighborhood is, is what it really is. like. He's coming into Lexington. He's coming into Irmo. He's going into West Columbia. He's going into those places. So if you are able, would you now stand with me and let's tune our hearts to what the Lord would have us here this morning, as we've said before, the reason we stand for the reading of the Word of God is because there is nothing more important that will be said here this morning. Uh, I I, I promise you in the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes, there will be nothing more important said than these verses that we're about to read. This is John 3, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and they remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what, has, what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we we thank you uh, just for the opportunity to be here. We thank you that you're a God who speaks, who doesn't remain distant, but who comes and meets us. Lord, I pray now that you would just do your work. Uh, that you would move the distractions of our hearts and our minds away from us. That you would just sort of burn those things away that we might hear from you this morning. I pray for my own heart. I pray that you would, that you would allow me to hear you. That you would draw us all closer to you this morning. Or would you give us eyes to see. Uh, give us ears to hear and awaken our souls this morning to know you more. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, a a couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw Jesus interacting with uh, a Pharisee, okay, a ruler of the Jews, a guy called Nicodemus. And what he told Nicodemus back in in chapter, back in verse 3 was that unless one is born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he said, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then what we saw last week is that Jesus connects this idea of the kingdom of God, of God's kingdom, with uh, not our ability to earn our way there, not our ability to figure out the right path and take those steps. He doesn't doesn't do that at all, but he connects the idea of the kingdom of God with the love of God. These two things go hand in hand, and we said that it's only because of the giving, the gleaming, and the galvanizing love of God. Remember, we used those words that we never used last week? That was fun. We used gleaming and, and galvanizing. We used those words to describe the love of God that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what it said, John 3, 16, right? That's the way to the kingdom. That's how we go from being outside of the king's gate to welcomed at the king's table. It's because of his love, okay? It's not by the work of our hands, not by the wisdom of our minds. It's not because we are so doggone smart. It's not because we are going to be successful and God knows that, so he really wants us on on his team. It has nothing to do with that. It's because he loves us. It's only because of the love of God expressed in his mercy and his justice at the cross that we can be redeemed in Jesus Christ. Apart from that, apart from that, we are hopeless. Now, in our passage today, we see some of how the kingdom works in this world. We're starting to see how this thing plays out on the ground. We see that that since we are all citizens of, of the same kingdom, that we're all called to engage together in the ministry of the gospel. That this is our purpose. And we become the heralds. That my job now is to be a herald of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we see it practiced, even, even in the early church, in the early ministry of Jesus himself. Look back at verses 22 through 24. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming to be baptized. And then it says, for John had not yet been uh, put in prison and we'll get to John in prison later. And here's the first thing I want for us to see today. The first thing, when we're talking about the kingdom and, and, and when we're talking about the kingdom of God in light of what we've seen of the love of God, we're considering the kingdom in, in light of what Jesus did in his time on earth. We want to see how does he interact? How does he engage in kingdom work? We need to understand that as, as God's people, that there is one task. That's, that's the first thing. There's one task. It's very simple. God is, a, God is a God of order and simplicity. We complicate it, right? We're the ones who mess it up all the time. But there is one task for us. And so as we serve the king in his kingdom, we serve not as agents of Rivercrest Presbyterian Church, not as agents of the PCA or Young Life or FCA, all of which are good things, but we don't serve as agents of those things. We serve as agents of reconciliation, as citizens of the kingdom. We serve as agents of the gospel. That's it. Period. Period and we see it on display in this section. There's one task. Look at how it plays out here. We see that there are two camps at work in this first section. The first is Jesus and his disciples, right? We see them there. Uh, They're they're out in the countryside. They're doing this work. They're baptizing. If you glance down at chapter 4, verse 2, you're going to see that Jesus himself did not baptize, but it was his disciples doing it. So he's there kind of overseeing that ministry. So very early on, Jesus is mobilizing other people to do the ministry of the gospel. They are, they are baptizing, and that means what we're talking about is a water baptism, right? We, we've had that here in this church. We took water, and we, and we baptize folks who have made a profession of faith, and the water points to uh, not our, our need for a physical cleansing, but our need for a spiritual cleansing, that we are dirty. We, we can't forget that. Baptism points to the need of every single man for the need of spiritual cleansing. There is nobody who comes to Jesus from anything other than a position of, of broken and needy. We, we come to him desperate because we are all sinners apart from Christ, every single one of us. And so Jesus and his disciples are ministering through this baptism, uh, which if we track along with Matthew chapter 3, we would understand this is a baptism for, the, for repentance, That was what John was proclaiming to them. He he constantly said, he is not the Messiah. He said, I am not the Christ. He was preparing the way, and the way that he prepared it was to call people to repentance. And in order to repent, you have to understand your need for repentance. That's a rule. You cannot repent of something that you don't think you need to repent for. We do this with our children all the time, right? You need to tell your brother you're sorry. And what do they say? I'm sorry. Sorry. I mean, they're not sorry, right? Honestly, most of the time they're like, he got what he deserved, okay? It was, if he's lucky it wasn't worse, right? But, but the truth is, if we, if we understand our sin, if we understand our guilt, then repentance comes pretty easy, so you cannot repent unless you understand that you need repentance, unless you understand how you are missing the mark. You know, we talk about sin as missing the mark. What, most of what we do in life is, or what I do in life, is I tend to shoot an arrow, right? I flick and it hits, the, it hits somewhere. And then what I like to do, because I like to be king of my own world, is then I go and draw a circle around that and go, see, this is what you're aiming for. But in Christ we see that no, here is the target. And when we talk about repentance, we're talking about where we miss the mark. So it's where my aim is off, where the intentions, the thoughts, the motivations, where those things fall short. That's what repentance looks like. It's understanding that we have missed the mark. And so John comes out of the wilderness, he's a little bit weird, and he and he proclaims repent. And why does he do that? Do you remember? The next word, after repent, he says, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so now John is continuing his same ministry. Even after he has met Jesus, even after he has interacted with him, he's continuing that same ministry. He's just a little farther north, okay? And we should never forget that Jesus and and John were always contemporaries. Like they were always, there was never a part of John's ministry where Jesus wasn't alive and active. He didn't just come out of nowhere. They, they, they grew up together, right? I mean, to take this to the absolute very beginning, the first proclamation that John makes of who Jesus is is when they are still in, in their mama's bellies. I mean, his ministry of preparation began from the womb as he's kicking mama going, this is the one, this is the one. I, I can tell he's here, this is the one. And Mary's going, I don't know what's happening here, but uh, there's something happening. You see, his ministry was always preparatory. His first announcement was from his mama's belly. And so here we see that while there are two groups, there are two groups and they're operating separate from one another, there is only one task. And as long as John is free to cry for repentance, that's what he's going to do. And the task of the church today is that same task. We're not telling people to, that, that we have everything right. We're not leading, saying, look, just be like us. We're not doing that. We demonstrate this through repentance. I, I've, I've wondered uh, quite a bit in, in the recent months how different the church would look if we didn't point the finger and tell everybody what they're doing wrong, What if we told the world what we're doing wrong and asked God to graciously forgive us of it. I think we all stand to learn a lot. We spend a lot of time in, in evangelical circles talking about things like mission trips, right? It's summertime. And so the churches, if you follow any churches on social media and stuff, you're going to start seeing this. We're going to Sudan. We're going to Cherokee, North Carolina is where you always go. You have to start off going to Cherokee, North Carolina. It's a rule if you're in the PCA. It's the first place you ever go. You stay in a campground and you build. The, you work on the same rooftops that I worked on when I was a kid. It's just, they just perpetually need roof repair. All right. You, you go there, or in the and then if you get to like varsity level, right, you have to get a passport. That's what that means, right? If, you, if you're a real missionary, at some point you have to get a passport. And we understand and we can laugh about this because we know it's not true. We know this is fundamentally wrongheaded. Now, there's nothing wrong with going on mission trips, but if we ever think that there's a week out of the year where we're on mission and that the other 51 we're off, that's not being a citizen of any kingdom. You're never a citizen for one week out of the year. At least not in any kingdom I've ever heard of. You either are or you are not. And see, you are a witness. That is the one task. That's what we're told. You're going to be a witness. And so as a God-called, Christ-redeemed spirit, indwelt agent of reconciliation, you have a task to do. And there's one task. We don't give a week here or there. We give our lives. Look back at verses 25 through 30 real quick. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I love the imagery in this section. I love that, I love that despite all of the cultural, all of the technological, all of the, all of the changes that we, that we have had in, in the existence of humanity from the first century until now, that the image of a groom and his groomsmen still makes sense to us. That there are some things that just kind of, that, that they permeate throughout culture. It doesn't, you don't have to, under, we all understand what's happening. There's a man who's getting married, there's a bride who's coming down the aisle, and there's a guy standing behind him. That's the idea here. That's what he's talking about. He has said from the beginning, I am not the Christ. He has never once claimed to be the Messiah. He never did anything but prepare the way for the Lord. 1.7 says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. You see, John is not the door, but he, but he knows how to get there. He is the embodiment of the one task that we all share as Christians as we usher people to Christ. That's what John is. He's he's an usher. He's leading the way, saying, this is the way to Christ. This is how you get to him. I'm not him, but this is the way you get to him. But we also see that even within this early ministry that's taking place, that there's some division. There's a fracture in his camp. You see, the disciples of John are concerned because of the ever-growing numbers The ever-growing crowds beginning to surround Jesus. William Henderson points out that it's in the spirit of jealousy and anger that they purposely avoid even mentioning the name of Jesus. Did you see that in there? They call him, what what do they call him? The one who you testified to? The one who you bore witness about? They won't even say his name. There's jealousy there. You see, as they see it, Jesus and John are like rival competitors. They're also a little hyperdramatic too. They say all are going to him. We know that's not true. Every human being wasn't going to him, but a lot of people are going to him. These disciples of John might understand that in the kingdom there is one task, but they are failing to understand that in the kingdom there is also one team. That's the second thing. There's one team in the kingdom of God. Listen, in the 1936 Olympic Games, I know nobody remembers that anyway. In the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin, right? Right? Okay? Nine young men climbed into a, what they call a, it was a sleek, it was a custom-made wooden uh, racing boat. It was a rowboat, all right? an eight-man crew team. And they call them a racing shell. That's what it was made. And these these men from the University of Washington, they packed up all their stuff and they they paid their way. This is back before Nike endorsements and Ralph Lauren cost, co, uh, costumes for the teams, right? This was this was you had to pay your way there. So these college kids had to pay their way to travel across the Atlantic Ocean to get to Berlin. Well, Berlin, nineteen thirty six, is not Berlin, two thousand eighteen. That's Nazi Germany. This is right at the very beginning of. Of the Nazi movement. This is also right on the heels of the Wall Street collapse in 1929. They're coming out of the Great Depression. These are young men who have worked very, very hard. They have trained and trained and then paid their way to get there. And now they're about to compete against basically professional teams, teams who do this all the time. They don't have to be students. They don't have to pay their way there. They're competing against teams from Italy, from England, There's even a team there from uh, Bulgaria. Evidently, they had crew back then in Bulgaria. I I didn't know that. Anyway, um, they know that they're going to have to work harder than everyone else because everything is stacked against them. Everything is stacked against them. Ultimately, they won the gold medal in those games, and and what made it particularly (laughs) sweet is that Hitler and all of his boys are sitting up there on the podium watching this happen. They win the games not because they were the strongest, although we should be clear, they were strong, but all the teams were strong. They're in the Olympics. And it wasn't because they had better conditions than everybody else. In fact, by all accounts, they had the worst lane that you could be in for this particular game. But they won because they were perfectly in sync. See, that's what it takes to move that boat along, to move it in a straight line, is everybody has to row at the same time. Everybody has to listen to the, to the beat that the coxswain has given out to them, that he is He is pounding on the side of that boat. Stroke, stroke, stroke. This is the idea there behind the one team. That that's what what was missing in this early season of ministry. But John is not having that at all. Look at what he says. He says there, he must increase, but I must decrease. See, this is the anthem of every team that has ever existed. That it can't be about me that I have to do my job, I have to do what I'm called to do, and you have to do what you're called to do. And as we do that together, something begins to happen. This idea that we see there in the boat is exactly what we should see in the church. He must increase, but I must decrease. Most of us, listen, we do not naturally think this way. This is not the natural bent of our hearts we might say he must, in, he must increase, but in, in our minds, a lot of times we think, and maybe, maybe I'll increase a little bit with him, right? He must increase, and then I hope I hold steady. He must increase, and I hope it goes well for me that he's increasing. Maybe I will reap some benefit from his increase, right? Now, we don't say that stuff out loud because that get us in trouble. People look at us weird. They'd be like, I don't know if that's right, man. I'm pretty sure that's not what it says in the Bible, but that's how our hearts work. And if I'm just confessing my heart to you this morning... Uh, Take it. This is how I typically think. John says he must increase, but I must decrease. Not I must hold steady. Not I must remain neutral. Not I hope everything goes well for me. I must decrease. He's not interested in maintaining his own crowd. He is far more interested in pointing people away from himself. He wants the crowd to flock to Jesus. Because that's the one task. And John has a, has a clear understanding very early on that there is one team. And so like the best man standing there, remember this imagery? Like the best man standing there at the wedding, standing there behind the groom, he knows that it's not about him. It's not about him. It's not about his joy in that moment, even though he is certainly joyful. It is not about being seen, even though he is certainly visible. not about how many eyes are on him. It's about the bridegroom. It's about the bridegroom welcoming his bride and getting all the words right. That's important, grooms. You need to get all the words right. That's what we tell our wedding parties every single time. When we do a rehearsal before a wedding, we tell them every single time that you are not here as a decoration. I know you're pretty and you're going to look nice in your dress, but that's not why you're here. All right, You are not a decoration, and you're also not here to be invisible. You were picked here. You were chosen by the bride or by the groom to stand here in this moment to lead the people in celebration, to lead them even in worship. You are here as a member of this wedding party to celebrate the union of the bride and the groom. That's the team that we're on. We're the groomsmen. We're the bridesmaids. We're there actively cheering this thing on. And so like, just like that best man, that's John's role in the ministry. And that's our role in the kingdom. We are to lead the watching world in the joyful expression of praise at the union of the bridegroom with his bride. Man, that's a high calling. That's not a little thing. We get dressed up fancy for weddings. We rent out places after it and celebrate what's just happened. I wonder why it is that so often we walk out of church, walk out of worship, and the first thing we think about is the grocery list. The first thing we think about is what the next task is that we have to do. Man, we should leave here celebrating. When people see you in a restaurant after worship, you ought to be the happiest sucker in the place. Because you've just witnessed something beautiful. You see, we are one team, and Jesus and his bride become our foremost affection, becomes our motivation in this life, celebrating that union. We are one team. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so in the kingdom, we see there's one task, there's one team, and there's also one testimony. We're going to do this one really quick. Look at this. Look back at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. I'm saying that there is one testimony. One testimony. We could also say there's one witness. Uh, in 35, it says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. What did he give to him? What did he put in his hands? But all things, right, all things. Are you Everybody with me? I'm gonna say this until you just absolutely, he put all things into his hands, all things. That's not even ambiguous, all things, right? everybody all things. Good? We're good. Okay. That word all, that word all is is the word panta, okay? It's used throughout the New Testament. That's a a Greek word, panta. Now, I told you a thousand times, I am not a Greek scholar, but I can find a word and figure out where it happens over and over again in, in the New Testament. That word panta is all. The father loves the son and has given him all things. He's put all things into his hands, all things. And then it says he's above all, right? He's above all, all things have been given into his hands. It's the same exact word that we see in Matthew chapter 28. The same exact word that we see in Matthew chapter 28, where it told us to go to make disciples of all nations. See, there's one testimony. You can t- contextualize it. You can, you can make it make sense. in way. Well, ultimately, there is one testimony, and it is Jesus Christ. There's a universal nature to this whole thing. Jesus doesn't just have authority over some things. He he has authority over all things. Anything less than that is not enough. And so what does that mean for us? Well, it means that he can't be sovereign over my days and not sovereign over my nights. He can't be sovereign over my Sundays and not sovereign over my Mondays. It's just not, it doesn't work that way. He's either sovereign or he is not. So he cannot be sovereign over, like he can't be sovereign over my time, and not sovereign over my finances. You see, we tend to play this game. I will give Jesus this, but I'm going to hold this back here because I'm uncomfortable letting go of that. You cannot be sovereign over the job that you have and not over the hobbies that you enjoy. Sometimes it feels like we're like we're set on asking Jesus to be king of our Sundays rather than king of our hearts. But over in John, 1 John 5.10, we read, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Then he simplifies it for us to the point where it is absolutely impossible to misunderstand. He says this, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That is pretty clear, right? Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's about as cut and dry as you can make it. And the point is simple. This is our testimony. This is the testimony. This is the witness. If you do not know Jesus, you do not have life. That's it. If you do not know Jesus, you do not have life. That means that if you do not have the Son, you are still dead in your sins and your trespasses. And our one testimony, our one witness is this, that God himself has come to rescue and to renew his creation in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He came because we can't do it. He came because I couldn't save myself. Apart from his sacrifice for us, we are hopeless. We are condemned. But the good news is that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't come for that cleaned up version of you. He didn't come for that one that you want us to all believe exists. He came for the one that is as nasty and hidden away as you can make it. He came for that version. It's that for our sake, he made him to, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, those are gospel verses. That's the testimony that we have. That's the gospel. It's the the one task that we have been given as the one team. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, that what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's the task, to be a servant of all for the sake of the kingdom and we are the team, I want to be honest with you, I often wonder why God would put me on this team. I don't know if you wrestle with that. I don't know if you feel inadequate at times, but there have been many seasons in my life where I have doubted or questioned God's wisdom in choosing me. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I know he called me because I can serve. I can serve. And so it's said, he must increase. I must decrease. No divisions, no competition with one another. The truth is we should be each other's biggest encouragers in this life. We should be each other's biggest cheerleaders standing behind one another and propping one another up because we're all in the same fight. I want to ask this, who on the team will you encourage this week? I'm not asking you to go to your, uh, for for the sake of right now, I'm not asking you to go knock on your neighbor's door and tell them that Jesus loves them, okay? If you want to do that, record it, all right? We want to see how that plays out. I'm asking you to encourage one of the people who you would claim as a brother or sister this week. Just one, just one person. If you want to go crazy, you got six other days than Sunday. Get six people. Who can you encourage this week? Who will you call, text, or tweet this week to encourage them in the task? Who will you reach out to this week? Don't, wait, don't look at somebody else and go, yeah, are you going to encourage me before I encourage you? We do that game too. Well, I would encourage her if she was more encouraging to me. Who will you... Encourage this week, maybe even today, to encourage on the mission. You see, there's one testimony. Notice in 36, the one line says it, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And then in the next line, it says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see that implied connection there? There's a connection between belief or faith, it's the same word, and obedience see, those who believe the Son, those who have faith in the Son, will be obedient to the Son. We will follow after Him. We will cling tightly to Him. And we will be His heralds. We will be His team committed to the one task of proclaiming the one testimony. And I promise you, the world will hear it. Not because you're loud, but because you're honest. Let's pray together. "'Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. "'Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, "'with the lyre and the sound of melody. "'With trumpets and the sound of the horn, "'make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. "'Let the sea roar and all that fills it, "'the world and those who dwell in it. "'Let the rivers clap their hands. "'Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, "'for He comes to judge the earth. "'He will judge the world with righteousness.'" and the peoples with equity. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would let us walk today as your children, as citizens of your kingdom. Let the joyful noise not have to come from the rivers, not have to come from the mountains. Let it come from your people as we walk with you. And I pray that in Jesus' name.